Well, good morning, Grace Chapel. Just a few words before we kind of get, get to our message here this morning. I want to let you know that tomorrow, a small team, handful of us, will be leaving on a cross-cultural learning experience. Uh, Pastor Jeanette and I and Karen and uh, Pastor Tom Lee from East Lexington, a couple of our lay leaders, will be heading to China to spend about eight or nine days learning more about the work of the church there in that part of the world, uh, hopefully visiting with some church pastors, offering words of encouragement, learning what we can from them, and uh, also visiting with our longtime partner in that part of the world, uh, Stephanie Diamond, as well. So appreciate your prayers for safety and smooth travels and wisdom and discernment and energy and all those sorts of things as well, as many of our other trips will be going out uh, over the summer. Uh, we'll be beginning our kind of summer preaching season next week, so on 4th of July weekend next week, uh, Pastor Tom Van Antwerp will be speaking, and he's going to be speaking on the subject of how, as Christian people, we relate to our nation. What does it mean to be citizens of a nation under God's rule? So on 4th of July weekend, with all that's uh, happening in our country today, certainly a timely topic that I know Pastor Tom will speak to with great grace and wisdom. And the week after that, we'll begin our summer series, which we're calling Icons, When Culture Whispers God's Story. We like to change the pace a little bit in the summertime, so this summer we'll be tuning in to some of the faces and voices and stories of contemporary culture and trying to discern where those stories intersect with God's story and affirm it and where they fall short of God's story. So over the course of the summer, a variety of us on the staff will be speaking from areas of culture we enjoy, whether it's music or movies or novels or sports or whatever it might be, and also going to the scripture uh, from week to week. So it should be a really wonderful series. So if you are in town, summer, be here. You don't want to miss it, uh, or wherever your campus is. If you're traveling, you can catch up with us online, of course. We hope you'll do that. And then finally, yesterday was a happy day for the Grace Chapel family. Two of our student ministry pastors, Andrew Breton and Leah Knight, were joined in holy matrimony. For those of us, you who know them, it was a long time coming. So if some of us look a little weary this morning, it's because we had a fun, long day celebrating with them yesterday, but that is, is wonderful, wonderful news. We're happy for that. So with all of that, let us get to our message for today. Whenever I find myself in New York City, I always like to go for a run in Central Park. You never know what you're going to see there, and you join hundreds, thousands even of runners, walkers, bikers, skaters, panhandlers, whatever, making their way in and around the park. I usually do a little loop around the perimeter, and so almost always eventually end up at a section of the park called Strawberry Fields, where you find embedded in the sidewalk a monument with one word on it, imagine. Now, it's a tribute, of course, to the songwriter John Lennon and his ballad that envisions a better day for humankind. Uh, most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion, too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us, and the world will be as one. No matter what time of day it is, no matter what season of the year it is, there are always people there, taking pictures, lay, arranging flowers, just milling about. Because that song, 
that vision has literally captured the imagination of generations of people from all over the world. It's the vision of a world at peace, a world as one. And it turns out that vision is one of two competing storylines for the future of the human race. And this particular storyline we might call the utopian dream. And the storyline behind this one is that the world is getting better and better and better. And it's only a matter of time before we all get it right. It's a vision that was given birth during the Enlightenment period of human history some 300 or so years ago. This rise of science and discovery and learning and reason and adventure and, and revolution around the world. But it's a vision that so far has failed to deliver. In spite of all the advances in medicine and technology and diplomacy and philanthropy, look at the world from any angle, and it's pretty obvious that the vision of a world at peace is as elusive as ever. In fact, the sobering irony of that monument is that it lies just a few hundred feet from where the songwriter himself was shot to death by a so-called fan. The utopian dream has never materialized. The second storyline we might call the doomsday scenario. This one ends with the world being destroyed. I came across a website that lists 15 ways the world might be destroyed. It's pretty depressing. I'll just give you a quick sample. An asteroid collision, like the one that might have wiped out the dinosaurs a long time ago. A nuclear nightmare as a result of either war or accident. A super volcano. Apparently, there's one beneath Yellowstone that has passed its due date. A pandemic caused by a mutant virus or a resistant bacteria. A rogue black hole that swallows up the universe. A robot revolution if artificial intelligence advances beyond human intelligence. And, and then there's always the possibility of an alien invasion now playing at a theater near you. <laughs> Literally, okay? So the storyline here is that the world is getting worse and worse and worse. And it's only a matter of time before disaster catches up with us. The truth is, science tells us that whether we're headed towards a dream or a nightmare, at some point, the very sun itself will run out of energy and the whole solar system uh, will be gone. So two competing narratives for the future of the human race. A utopian dream and a doomsday scenario. One is too hard to believe, and the other is too grim to imagine. Now, thankfully, there's another story unfolding. A story that is as old as history itself, and way better than these two. It's a story that is told by the Bible. A story that begins and ends with Jesus. We're coming today to the final message in our year-long journey of rediscovering Jesus. We began all the way back in September, in the very first pages of the Bible, where we read about the offspring of a woman who would crush the serpent's head. And from there, we traced Jesus through the Old Testament, Redeemer, Shepherd, Messiah, King. We got to the Gospels, and we discovered that Someone named Jesus of Nazareth really lived and died and left behind an empty tomb. 
We went on the road with Jesus and discovered that he wants to meet us on the road of our lives as well, even when we get stalled sometimes. We came to the book of Acts and we watched him ascend into heaven to the right hand of God. And then as we got to the letters of the New Testament, we discovered that that even though he's in heaven by his spirit, he is still now at work in the world today. And someday we'll come back to finish what he's begun. So now we want to get to the end of the story. How does it end? How do our stories end? So let's go to the final chapters of the Bible. Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, there are far too many questions to try to go after here, but the basic idea we're going to discover here is that the end, the end of the story is better than we ever imagined because Jesus is at the very center of it. There are going to be a lot of questions to go after. I'm going to focus on three of them in particular in terms of the future. First, what will it look like, the life to come? Secondly, how will it happen? And thirdly, who will be there? So we'll walk our way through the chapters, through those questions. We'll finish up with the last of our faith stories from a Grace Chapel person. So let's go to the opening verses of chapter 21. Remember now, the book of Revelation is a, is a series of visions given to the Apostle John toward the end of his life. Now, interestingly, tradition has it that John received these revelations in a cave on the island of Patmos. And we got a cave thing going here for Vacation Bible School, in case you're wondering why I'm surrounded by stalactites, okay? That's, that's what's happening here. John received the series of visions about Jesus, about history, and about the end of the age. And remember that he received these visions primarily for his first century readers who were afraid and uncertain in the face of increasing persecution from the Roman Empire. They wanted to know how it was going to end for them and for the world, and we do too. So let's begin in the first few verses. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So our first question is, what will heaven or the life to come look like? Now John uses this phrase, heaven and earth, to describe all of creation, what we would call the universe. And what strikes him about this vision is that it's new. What he sees is new. Now, it's not new in the sense that it is completely unlike the present heaven and earth. I mean, John obviously recognizes that this is the earth and heaven that he's looking at. So it's not so much new in the sense that it's different. It's new in the sense that it's better, way better. For instance, there is no sea in this vision. Now, the sea was used symbolically throughout the Bible to speak of, uh, of the realm of darkness, of evil. Remember, the Jews are primarily a people of the land. So the open sea was a foreboding, unfamiliar place. It was a place of chaos. It was where storms came from. 
And so when John says here there's no sea, he's saying there's no more source of evil and darkness. Imagine that. He goes on to say that there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. None of the things that, that break our hearts and, and break our bodies and break our relationships, they'll all be done away with. So imagine that for a minute. Imagine a world with no evil, no trafficking, no terrorism, no racism, no poverty. Imagine a world with no cancer, no Zika, no allergies, no asthma. All these things are gone. Everything that's wrong with this world will be gone. And then he tells us everything that's right with the world will be better. For instance, he sees a city more beautiful than any city anyone has ever seen. It's shown with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. It's not only more beautiful than any earthly city, it is bigger than any earthly city. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He's describing a cube 1,500 miles across and deep and high. Now imagine for people in the ancient world, the thought of a city 1,500 miles square and high was beyond their imagining. If we skip ahead to chapter 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Now remember, this is all very symbolic language here, but John sees a city that has a never-ending supply of water. Now remember, he's writing to desert people. So imagine them imagining this in this hot, dry land, any time you feel like it, to reach to the center of the city and scoop up some cold, fresh, clear water as much as you could possibly want. It was beyond imagining. One tree bearing 12 crops, a different one each month. I mean, imagine that. Apples one month, bananas the next, cherries, mangoes, whatever, on and on. It's the original fruit of the month club, <laughs> right? And it's free. And these trees, they're not only good for eating, they're good for healing. For the healing not only of bodies, but for the healing of nations. I mean, who's ever imagined a tree like this? Well, there's more we could read and talk about, but, but you get the idea. This new creation is going to be similar to the old creation, but so much better, we'll almost hardly recognize it. Because everything that's wrong will be gone, and everything that's good will be better. It might help to think of it this way. The difference between the new creation and the old creation is not like the difference between the iPhone 6 and the iPhone 5. <laughs> you know, a few more pixels, a slightly larger screen, but basically the same concept. No. The difference between the new creation and the old creation is the difference between an iPhone and a telephone. All right, anybody remember this thing? Okay, you put your fingers in, you went like that, and you had the cord, and... Now, on the one hand, you say these are the same things. They're technological devices that provide us with connection and information. But the difference between an iPhone and a telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, in his wildest imaginations, could not have conceived of what a phone could look like someday. 
And so it will be in the life to come. Beyond our wildest imaginations. And people often wonder, you know, yeah, but, you know, will there be chocolate there or a baseball or whatever? And we, we don't know exactly. What we do know is that things that are good and true and beautiful in this world will be there in the next world. And if there's not there, it's because there's something more good, more true, and more beautiful there. Which means that if there is chocolate, it has zero calories and is good for your teeth. <laughs> so that's what it'll be, right? So there's a lot we honestly don't know about heaven. We can speculate all we want, but what we do know is that it will bigger, be bigger and better and more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. The second question we want to answer, of course, is, well, how is this going to happen? Because it sure hasn't happened yet. How will the world end and how will a new world come to be? Look at verse 2. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now notice, first of all, the story doesn't end with us leaving this earth and going to heaven, as so many of us have for so long imagined in our stories and our songs and even in our hymns. No, the story ends with heaven coming down to us. It's a reminder that God is not going to abandon his creation. The earth and sea and sky that God made, he made for our pleasure and for his glory. He had big plans for it, and he still does. So he's not giving up on it, and he doesn't want us to give up on it either. He's going to renew and restore it so that it becomes all that it was meant to be. But then notice that this new creation comes down to us from heaven. In other words, it's God himself who brings in this new creation. It's not something we achieve by our own wisdom and strength and, and effort. I mean, if, if history tells us anything, it tells us that we are not able to pull this off. Not, not, not education, not science, not medicine, not government, not uh, philanthropy, not rock and roll, not, not anything has been able to bring in this new world order. God himself is going to put the world right someday. And he's going to do it through his son, Jesus. Verse 22. I did not see a temple in this city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. This is the lion lamb we spoke of a couple of weeks ago. The lion of Judah, the lamb of God. The only one strong enough and good enough to fix what's wrong with us and with our world. Jesus came into this world and did what no human being has ever been able to do. He lived a perfect life. A life marked by beauty and love and kindness and grace at every single turn. He died a sacrificial death by bearing the sin and the shame of the whole entire human race, taking it on himself. He, he rose victorious from the grave, conquering the one enemy none of us has ever, ever been able to conquer, death. And then he threw wide open the doors to eternal life, inviting anyone who wanted to follow him into the kingdom of heaven. Only Jesus could have done this and has done this. But suddenly we realize what's going on here. This kingdom to come has in fact already come. 
What Jesus did was to bring the kingdom to us. Isn't that what he said? His first words out of Galilee, the time has come, the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This, this new world is not just something we wait for someday. It's something that has come to us in history, in the person of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. The kingdom has already come. The, the future is already here. We begin to live and experience it now. We get glimpses of this kingdom from time to time. We see a life put right. We see a relationship put right. We see a wrong put right. We don't only see it, we actually get to help with it sometimes because we're involved in this great work of recreation. So the good news is that this kingdom has already come. The great news is that someday it will come in its fullness. And Christ himself will finish the job. And everyone and everything will be put right in all of creation. Only Jesus can do that. Now, there's just one little point of clarification I want to make here as we talk about the future and the life to come. What we're describing here, what John is describing, theologians refer to as the eternal state. It's how things will be when human history ends. But of course, that time has not come yet chronologically. It's still out there. So what does that mean for people who die now or who have already died in Christ? Where are they if this thing hasn't arrived yet? Well, theologians say that where they are is in the intermediate state. Doesn't that sound promising? <laughs> the Bible's word is better, paradise. Jesus says to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. So it does seem as though there is some place between here and the eternal state where we enjoy the presence of God and his people and some of the glories of that coming kingdom, but they just haven't come in their fullness yet. The full resurrection and restoration hasn't happened yet. Some people like to describe it as the porch of heaven where we get to sample a little bit of it and anticipate moving in when that day comes. So a lot of mystery there, but the key idea, of course, is that, that heaven is there and waiting for us and it's better than we could ever imagine and only God himself will bring it. And that leads to our third question. Who will be there? Now, the first thing we want to remind ourselves of is that Jesus will be there. And that really is John's primary point. The central feature of heaven and the life to come is that Jesus is at the very center of it, the lamb sitting on that throne. And we don't want to just skip over that because as good and true and beautiful as so many things are in this life and will be in the life to come, the thing that is the most good and the most true and the most beautiful is Jesus himself. And we will be with him in the life to come. Now, I know that's hard to translate, but... Throughout this year of rediscovering Jesus, in my own personal devotional time, I've been reading a little bit out of a book entitled Jesus, a Pilgrimage. It's written by a, a, a Jesuit priest named uh, Father James Martin. It's a very simple book in which he walks us through the life and teachings of Jesus through the lens of his first visit to the Holy Land. So here he's studied the scripture his whole lives and he goes for the first time to the Holy Land. And as he walks us through the various places that Jesus went and the things he did and the people he met, in simple, vivid, personal language, he brings it to life in the most wonderful ways. 
And so by simply reading a few pages each morning or most mornings, I feel as though I'm spending time with Jesus before the day begins. And every day I'm amazed at how kind and beautiful and good and strong and courageous and humble Jesus is. And, and it, it fills my heart with joy and courage to go out and live life better. But as wonderful as that, as that is, it's a few minutes, the beginning of the day. It's just a book. It's all happening in my imagination. In the life to come, Jesus himself will be sitting there. He'll tell the stories. We'll hear it in his voice and words. We'll capture his heart. And we will know and be known by him in ways we can't even imagine today. Don't underestimate the thrill and the fulfillment of that. So Jesus will be there. The second thing we're told is that his people will be there. Those who belong to Jesus will be there. Verse 24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter into it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, one of the surprising things about John's visions of heaven is how many people are there. John himself is surprised again and again in the book of Revelation at how many people are there and what a diverse collection of people are there from every tribe and language and people and nation. He says it again and again and again. He just can't believe what he's seeing. The only condition for being there seems to be that these people are somehow known by Jesus, that he has some kind of personal connection to them, that their names are written down in his book. So in some way, they have established some sort of personal connection with Jesus. And it turns out the invitation to do that is as wide as the world itself. John says, let anyone who is thirsty come and let anyone who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Everyone is welcome. Anyone is welcome. Anytime and from anywhere. It's a free gift. There are no preconditions to it except simply to say, yes, I want it. I'll take it. I'll drink from that river of life. I'd like my name written in that book. All people need to do in some small way. Jesus says that the faith the size of a mustard seed, that's not a lot. But in some small way, looking to God in faith and finding their way to Jesus. So it seems as though there will be a lot of people in heaven. More people than we ever imagined. And we can take great hope and comfort in that. At the same time, it seems there are some people who will not be there. People who by their own will have chosen not to enter into that city. Not to love God or even seek God. Remember, God gives us freedom. The freedom to live life with him or without him. And we can choose to do that in this life and also in the life to come. As Eugene Peterson puts it, if you don't want God, you won't like heaven. <laughs> right? If, if the things of God and the life of God is not interesting to you, then you don't want to spend eternity with him and with his people. 
So he doesn't drag anybody there against their will. He loves us. He wants us. He sent his son Jesus to find us. He said, all you have to do is look in my direction and I'll welcome you in. But he will not drag you in. C.S. Lewis put it this way. If the, gates are hell, if the gates of hell are locked, they're locked from the inside. Meaning it's, it's our decision as to where we want to spend eternity. It seems as though the people who are outside the city are outside the city because they want to be there, not because they've been sent there. Now, some people find hope in this little phrase of John's where he says, the gates of the city are always open. Is John suggesting that there might be opportunities on the other side of the grave to choose Jesus, to turn in faith, to confess, or to worship? There are a few passages of Scripture that might seem to hint in that direction. Does God have some provision for people who've never heard of Jesus or can't really make a choice about Jesus? Is it possible to be saved through Jesus even if you haven't heard of Jesus or been able to respond to him? These are questions we all ask and wonder about. The truth is we don't have any specific answers to those questions. What we do have is a sure and free way to eternal life and the kingdom of God simply by putting our faith in Christ and his work on the cross. And so we follow that way and we proclaim that way with all of our hearts for all of our lives that we and everyone we come in contact with might have opportunity to choose and live in that way as well. And then we trust our just and merciful God to do what is right by every single person. And we can trust him to do that far better than any of us could do that. So there's, as I said, a lot we could talk about here. But what we learn here in the closing chapters is that the end of human history is better than we ever imagined it to be. That Jesus in the life to come is more real and more present than we've ever imagined him to be. That there will be more people in that kingdom than we ever imagined there would be. And so you see, the problem with John Lennon's vision isn't just that it's beyond our reach. It's that it's too small. It's too limited. Imagine there's no heaven. Really? No transcendence, no mystery, no miracle or wonder. Do we really want this world, the things we see, touch, taste, feel? Is that really all there is? Is that what our hearts tell us? No heaven at all? Imagine there's no countries. Really? No variety of people and cultures and ethnicities? No distinctive colorful, varied ways of being human? Is everybody from the same place? Is everybody from New Jersey? <laughs> Is that what we want? Some of my best friends are from New Jersey. 
I hope someday you'll join us. Well, join who? Join all the fallible, flawed, fallen people who made this mess in the first place. The people who, no matter how hard we try, we can't seem to fix ourselves, let alone fix the world. Is, is that who I'm going to hitch my wagon to for all of eternity? And the world will be as one. Is that all? Just the world? And what about the rest of creation? What about the moon and the stars? What about the solar system? What about the galaxies? What about the universe? What about every living, breathing, created thing in all of the universe? What about all of that becoming one in Christ? Now, that's a vision. That's, that's John the Apostle's vision. Now, I like John Lennon as much as any baby boomer does. But I'll take John the Apostle's imagination any day. Any day. John's vision is the vision of a world made right, of people made right, not in our own strength, but in, in God's strength through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the vision of a kingdom that's not only coming someday in the distant future, but has already come and is available to us today to enter in and to begin live and share with others. It's a promise that what God will do someday for all of creation, he is doing now for individual people like you and me, enabling us to be the people we were created to be and shape this world into the world that he means it to be and will bring it to be someday. And that's what keeps us strong to the finish, knowing that Jesus can and will put the world right someday and that he has, in fact, already begun to do so, one life at a time. Now, to appreciate that truth in a very personal way as we finish out our series here, we'd like you to hear from one more longtime Christ follower here at Grace Chapels. Let's turn our attention to the screen for a moment, and then we'll wrap things up. Hi, my name is Angela Albano. I've been a follower of Jesus for the last 40 years and uh, I have two passions. One is writing poems and the other is calligraphy. When I was in my late teens, I remember wondering if I'd live long enough to move from one century into the next. At age 64, when that time came, I not only went from the 20th century into the 21st, but I entered a whole new millennium. Wow, I thought, I must be old. My life is spanning two millennia. I've since come to believe that my life will be lived far beyond 2,000 years. The truth is, from the time I was a teenager, I always sensed I was meant to live forever. But the church I was part of didn't have much to say about that, so I went looking other places. I studied and believed in reincarnation, astrology, and other occult topics. They led me down many dark and disappointing dead ends. During the last seven years of my searching, my faithful brother witnessed to me about Jesus. He never gave up on me. Finally, at 44, I was weary of trying and I turned to the God of my youth and gave my life to him. The Holy Spirit washed out all the lies I had believed and he took up residence in me. Over the years, I thought a lot about how Jesus would one day come for me. 
and I would step into eternity with him and live out my immortality. I was eager for the excitement that was coming. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Throughout the past 11 years, though, these thoughts began to take on a deeper significance as I've been living with and battling cancer that has led me in and out of hospital rooms and through various treatments. The cancer in my body seemed like it was going to win, but God had another idea. An alternative treatment has given my body a few more years of life, and the Lord is using my availability for His purposes. Now that my years on earth are coming to a close, God has changed my focus. I know that my eternity is secure in Christ, but I also know that I'm not done with my life here on earth. And for me, having purpose in life is a gift every day. As long as I'm here, I'm looking to live for Him. All of this happens because I have found peace. Peace comes from a confidence that life is a continuum. You see, the promise of eternity helps me live fully in the here and now. I don't live in worry or in fear, but in the knowledge that Christ is with me today and He will be with me tomorrow and the next day and all the days after that. And so it is my hope in heaven that helps me look for meaning and purpose in each and every day. Well, Angela has found a living hope. And she's found it in a personal relationship with Jesus. It's a hope that has given her strength for 40-some years of life, and a hope that uh, she will make it strong to the finish of her life and to her entrance into the eternal kingdom, greater than she ever imagined. If you don't have that hope, if you don't know that your name is written in that book of life, you can settle that today. You can begin a relationship with Jesus today, simply looking to him in humility and faith. Lord, I can't do it myself. I, I can't fix myself, let alone this world. And so I ask you to do it. Will you forgive me and make me new so that I can begin making this world new with your help? That's it, a simple prayer in the quietness of your heart, right where you're seated right now or later today or any time. If you've already done that, if you know your name is written there, then start living like it. Live with strength and confidence and hope and continue to rediscover Jesus again and again and again, allowing him to make you strong to the finish of your life and to welcome you someday into his eternal kingdom, which is bigger and more beautiful than you ever imagined. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed and coming to the end of a year-long series, I'd love to give you an opportunity today if you are perhaps praying a prayer like that, turning in faith to Jesus for the first time or maybe the first time in a long time. 
I'd love to know that and pray for you. So if you could just slip a hand up where you are and look towards me for a moment. If you're on your campuses, you can uh, raise a hand as well and your campus pastor will know. Just lift a hand up, let me know. Thank you, amen. 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 Thank you, Lord, for these incredible moments on a summer Sunday to settle down for an hour or so, look into your word, understand something about the present and the future, and the opportunity to begin living a life that's not only different but eternal. So I pray for these who open their hearts to you in some particular way today. May they know that they are forgiven people, that right now you're beginning to change and form them into the people you made them to be. And for the many here who have made that decision, Lord, we pray that we would never, never tire of discovering and rediscovering Jesus. May he continue to fill our imaginations that we would live for him and with him now and always. In his name we pray, amen.